Welcome to Art Worlds with me, Dr. Cleo Roberts Comoretti. This is the podcast that tells you all about the art worlds you might have missed. We're going to journey around the globe and talk to artists, patrons and curators from Cambodia to the Democratic Republic of Congo. With this, we'll build a truly international perspective of the many thriving art worlds. Cambodia, a country nestled at the base of Thailand, Laos and Vietnam, is a land of great rivers and lush plains. Historically, it was a cultural linchpin for Southeast Asia, a place where Hinduism and Buddhism from India spread. And it's still associated with ambitious and intricate stone temples, many UNESCO protected. It's quite a feat that they're still standing, for the country has known intense periods of turmoil and devastation. It switched from being a French colony to a Japanese-occupied land through independence to the reign of Khmer Rouge that gave way to a Vietnam-backed socialism until political autonomy came in the 1990s. Cambodia's arts adapted to the aesthetic ideologies of each period. Where the French cultivated craft and traditional techniques, the Japanese pushed painting from observation. It is only in the last century that the visual arts began acquiring a strength of their own. Thanks to a number of artist-led initiatives, there's been an efflorescence of art practices, audiences have developed, and gradually private galleries are multiplying. Sopi Pish, one of Cambodia's most innovative artists, looks to the ground around him for his materials and inspiration. It's what he calls a non-wastage approach. On a remote farm, in a mountainous region, not too far from Cambodia's capital, Phnom Penh, Pish can be found in his studio, industriously stripping and softening bales of bamboo and rattan. Slowly, these assume the shape of his strikingly elaborate latticework sculptures that radiate bodily, vegetal and geometric references. It's little wonder that his work is in the collections of many museums across the world, including the Pompidou Centre in Paris and Mori Art Museum in Tokyo. We spoke about the development of his practice and the ways he's encouraging Cambodia's younger generation of artists. Your early life entailed forced migration from Cambodia, brought on by Vietnam's invasion of the country, and the Sino-Vietnam Wars followed. By the age of 13, you were living in America. Did you find the devastation that you experienced came to the fore when you began your fine art studies at the University of Massachusetts and the Art Institute of Chicago? That is an interesting question. I've I've never been asked that before. Um, It's interesting because uh, I started doing art quite late. Um, uh, I I, I changed my major from pre-med to fine art in my sophomore year. And uh, that's because I wanted to make paintings. And uh, so I wasn't thinking about art for a long time. Um, But when I started to take painting classes, uh, there was a professor that uh, was teaching uh, techniques um, and he was an abstract painter. And I remember for some odd reason in that class, um, I did want to uh, paint um, things from my memory, 
you know, uh, when I was growing up during the Khmer Rouge. Um, and that entailed things that I saw, but also entailed things that I um, imagine. Uh, so, you know, having uh, in 1979, having seen a lot of uh, death, a lot of um, uh, a result of war, actually, um, you know, um, uh, tanks and airplane parts and bodies all along the road, everywhere. Um, that made me want to, for some reason at that time, I wanted to paint those pictures. But of course, my professor being that he was an abstract expressionist painter, <laughs> he was like, he was, he didn't have any of that. He said, what, what are you doing? This is not, you know, I can't teach you how to do that. This is not what this class is, is for, you know? And I asked him, well, what, what class can I do that in? He said, I don't know. You're not, <laughs> you know, you're not able to to get there yet. So you have to start from the beginning. So, uh, but then during um, my graduate school, um, I actually uh, saw a book that was published on the Tuaslein prisoners. And that's when I started to kind of lock myself into my bedroom. I didn't go to school other than to meet my professors and to my classes, you know, uh, like art history and that, and that sort of thing. But I didn't go to my uh, studio much and where I spend most of the nights in my room with uh, a lot of cigarette and uh, just painting with uh, India ink on, on watercolor paper and uh, copying uh, the images of the prisoners. And I made literally like over a hundred of them. Not all were successful. Um, so that's how kind of how I, I dealt with that, with that memory. And they were really atmospheric paintings. They were sort of figures almost shrouded in these India ink clouds. But you also then made a transition to sculpture. I think those were about the only paintings you did like that. What stimulated this move? I, I felt like, like telling a story through painting wasn't resolving anything in me, you know. Um, Seeing the environment around me in Cambodia at, at that time, in, in, the, in, in Phnom Penh, you know, in the city, um, there's a lot of energy. Uh, there are people, you know, just rushing about, selling things, bringing people here, there. Um, nobody have time to rest. Uh, I felt like physically I, I needed an activity to kind of mirror that. I want to be busy. I want to not sit around. I, I wanted to, to, to just like uh, at the end of the day, be completely uh, exhausted from work. You know, I wanted to work. And so that, that was the initial thinking, but I didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't, I, I wasn't a sculptor. So I said, well, what am I going to do with, 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 with this feeling? So I, started with the first sculpture called Silence from 2004. I happened to uh, visit a furniture shop on my bicycle because I ride around on a bicycle a lot and just observe. And I bought three uh, rattan, three or four rattan strands from them. You know, the size of my thumb and they're about three and a half, four meters long. So I dragged the three, four rattan strand back to my studio. 
and I made that first sculpture the best way I could with, you know, my chopping board, my butcher knife, uh, pair of pliers, just the wires that I had like hanging around the house. And when I made that first sculpture, I remember like how happy I was, how non-political my, my, my activity was how free I was for the first time, because I wasn't thinking about, you know, ideology. I wasn't listening to politics on the radio. I wasn't thinking about my past. I wasn't thinking about uh, my legitimacy as a, as a human being. I wasn't thinking how incapable I was when it comes to painting. <laughs> I, I didn't think about skill. So it was like, um, for the first time, I was able to play, you know, um, and that just sets me free. And I felt like I found something, but at the same time, you know, being at that at that stage, I didn't know that that was my calling until someone, the French Cultural Center director uh, at the time, uh, like a month later, he came by the studio and for the first time he came by the studio and he saw that piece and he just he just he told me that it gave him uh, it gave him goosebumps, and uh, he said it's for him it's the first modern sculpture he's ever seen in Cambodia, and I mean, wow, what a moment, you know. So I, I think I think that I think that time changed my life, you know. And they are, as he said, they're mesmeric, sort of staggering creations. You form these intricate matrices of rattan and bamboo and the process i'm sure has got more sophisticated since the first form that you made how do you enable the materials to become malleable enough to make these vast creations uh when it comes to rattan and bamboo uh i started with rattan for the first four i think three or four sculptures and then I found that the rattan, you know, uh, it's very, it's too flexible for, for if I wanted the sculpture to stand up uh, straight, like a kind of a geometric uh, architecture kind of, kind of, kind of piece. Uh, I realized the rattan just keep on, you know, gravity pulls, pulls the rattan down. So then I started with bamboo. Um, Everything is self-taught. I have no idea about how this material behaves. I didn't know anything about curing it in the beginning uh, to prevent, you know, water from seeping into it. You know that it it can rot. You know it can it can uh, disintegrate. So I had to learn like from whatever I could find from the internet at that time. It was 2004. It was very very early, and there's not a lot of, a whole lot of information um, uh, on a computer, but um, yeah, I was able to just like, okay, you can boil it with uh, uh, diesel oil. So we actually, we roll the rattan up to, into like a, a bundle and then we, 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 we get these um, uh, oil tanks. They're like, uh, you know, when they, when the, uh, I, I guess uh, companies that use oil, they, they have it in, in these tanks and, and we cut the tank in half and then we boil it. Like it's a pretty dangerous kind of thing because it could just catch fire so but that's kind of how we we learn how to do it and we're still doing that 
to this day, we, the, the tank got a lot bigger now, but um, it's still the same process. And a lot of the materials that you work with, or all of them are from your locality. So aside from the bamboo and rattan, you've used rice sacks to fill in some of your bamboo frames. You've worked with soil to create pigment and also beeswax. You've described it as a non-wastage approach. And I'm interested to know, aside from the country's resources being foundational to your work, do Cambodia's artistic traditions seep into your practice? That is also an interesting question. I've never done, been asked that before as well. Um, in terms of artistic uh, heritage or um, technique or method, I think I'm kind of floating around the peripheral. I mean, I don't really, I mean, look, uh, Cambodian art uh, uh, is known for its ancient uh, creations, you know, temples, uh, stone sculpture, uh, wood sculpture, you know, at some point, but it's not a big thing. It's more, it's more stone sculpture and, and architecture. If you, if you want to call uh, architecture with wood, like sculpture, I guess you can, uh, because there's technique involved and there's, 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 there's styles, there's, 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 there's um, patterns and, and things like that, that is taught to, to, to young artists and, and architects alike. But in terms of modern art, there isn't really much that had happened other than let's say painting um, with oil. So yeah, I'm, I'm not, um, to be frank, I'm not at all conscious of it. Um, I think stone, I started using stone on and off for many years now. Uh, my, uh, one of my sculpture that I showed at Venice, Venice Biennale had a uh, stone that was, uh, that was that started carving. Uh, so sandstone. So I learned a little bit more about Cambodian marble and sandstone and 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 uh, granite. Uh, but it's it's I'm I'm like a dabbler, you know. I I don't uh, yeah I'm I'm not traditional. I'm not uh, I'm not all that modern, but I'm not I'm certainly not traditional. Um, so it's sort of whatever I need to do that calls for a certain material. I'll go to it with the way that your sort of rattan bamboo sculptures are shown you sort of get a feeling of the work being an infrastructure and under construction and I'm thinking about famously your Buddha works you've made a bust that is left unfinished with strands of bamboo sort of flowing from it and also the Guggenheim have a fantastic plant work which looks skeletal so is the idea of having this under construction aesthetic important to you? I, th I think the, the, the reading that, that the, the, the work is uh, under construct or unfinished, uh, I'm uh, ambiguous about that reading because I think that uh, sometimes we over explain things, you know, and I don't know where the end would be like, I think what, what the word that I, that is in my, in, is in my head when I'm working, uh, when I feel it's the end would be something like, is it enough? You know, like, is it, is it conveying something of a surprise? The, the Buddha, again, I, that was the first Buddha I've ever made because I'm, you know, even though I grew up in a, you know, my father's a very Buddhist person. He's very religious because he was a monk when he was young. And, uh, 
he built temples and stuff when he was when he, when we were in the U.S. Uh, but I was always quite skeptical of you know who's Buddhism and who's telling the story you know um, so I don't consider myself like a devout Buddhist although I I do prescribe to a lot of the teachings. Um, so it, but my point of of making the Buddha wasn't to make a perfect Buddha or the Buddha of a certain kind or I was going to leave it that, that way or the other way. I have no idea, you know, it was more like, well, I guess I could start from the head down, you know, and once I get to the shoulder, I it just felt like that was enough, you know, like I didn't need to do any more. It was already a Buddha, you know, and uh, so it was telling enough of a story that I needed at the time. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know, later on, I, I, I end up making, um, a formal Buddha, like a sitting Buddha, different poses, but that was for my father and, and, and other things. So, you know, that was for a different purpose, but yeah, the first one was like, oh yeah, this is, this is very powerful already. I, I don't, I don't need to complete everything. I just, I just, I should just leave it like this. And it sort of worked out, you know, like that. Yeah, it did. And if you see it um, suspended at the Met, it was stunning like in amongst all their stone buddhas beautiful and you know when 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 uh when you go to the met all the buddhas are in stone but when you when you come to the the museum in cambodia the national uh, fine art museum uh they have this one room that's full of wooden buddha and a lot of these wooden buddha were left outside they were collected from different temples from 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 uh you know, uh, different owners. And so you actually see when, when the wood is rotten, uh, where there's lines flowing through them, where, you know, you, you know, a lot of the arms have fallen off. You actually, you actually kind of see that, you know, my Buddha had relationship to those, you know, a little bit. So if, if I had seen those before, I would have, it would have helped me in terms of how, how I was going to make it. But I didn't see those before. So I think it was just a lucky coincidence. You've spoken about your interest in your own duality and having lived abroad and then returned to Cambodia. And you've, to an extent, explored that in your work with a minimal aesthetic and indigenous materials. But now you've been living in Cambodia for many decades and established deep connections in the country. Do you feel that you've moved beyond this doubleness? That's also a very interesting question. I, <laughs> um, to be honest, I'm trying, you know, like I'm trying to consolidate. I'm trying to be uh, fearless. I'm trying to, but you know, what, what's in your head is not what's in your body a lot of the time. Uh, because I think, I think making art is a kind of ritual that builds on itself. And it has its own like listening apparatus, you know, it's, it doesn't care what I think so much. It's more about my body being in the studio, working with the material, working with the, whatever I have. Um, but if I want to be daring, if I want to, if I want to, to be, you know, like at, in the moment, uh, this is what I want, it doesn't work, you know? So, so yeah, I, I'm, I guess the, the, the short answer is like, it works sometimes when I'm free, you know? Uh, uh, I, I can be one, you know? Um, but it doesn't work if I try, you know? Um, so I think the duality 
doesn't leave me, um, but I'm trying to be whole. But um, I guess I'm still young because I'm 50, but maybe when I'm 60, I, I would feel more, more like it's resolved, you know? Mm. And I wanted to ask you about where you are in Cambodia. What you've set up sounds extraordinary, and you recently run a number of art on the farm artist talks where people congregate and listen to other artists give presentations on their work can you tell us more about this atmosphere that you've created so i i live outside of the city um for many many years now i think we moved out of the city since 2010 around that time and we are about half an hour away from the city um I wanted to, you know, I, I wasn't, I was, I was kind of self-occupied for a long time, uh, uh, just because I felt like my work was maturing and I needed to be quiet and just work with the guys that I have. But as I get a little older now, I feel like, you know, some of the students that I had, you know, I taught a little bit in 2007. Uh, some of those guys, they have their own art center now, and then they bring their students here. And, you know, we have discussions and uh, it's kind of a, like a two hour with superb, you know, kind of thing. And they always bring this every time, every like three or four months, they, all of them bring it. So I, I feel like I wanted to create something a little different where I would invite them to come, you know, like I want to invite the artists to come and, you know, I'll cook, I'll provide all the drinks, people want to bring something they can. But it's really, you know, I even like uh, hire a couple of buses to pick people up from the city because I don't want people to ride their motorbikes here. It's dangerous at night and, and whatnot. Um, but I, felt, I feel like I'm in a place now where I can actually do that, you know, and, and uh, continue to, you know, because uh, Cambodia is a, quite a transient place. You know, people come and go and, you know, we have a handful of people who stays here who are involved in the art scene. I mean, these people can buy works, can can support these young artists, you know. Um, and I just I just want to keep them involved in a like not in an academic kind of uh, atmosphere or like an art center kind of atmosphere, but more something a bit more, you know, loose, you know. Um, so that that's just you know, art on the farm is just something I started a couple of years ago and a few years ago now. I'm sure it's invaluable. How have you seen? the contemporary art world change in Cambodia? The, the, the change in the contemporary art world is, is in, in my mind, is, is, is due to uh, access to information, uh, access to uh, uh, materials, and I'm speaking specifically of uh, just the, the, the ease of capturing images, you know, whether through iPhone or, or cameras gotten a lot cheaper now, people have all these tools. And I think a lot of people want to tell the stories, you know, and I think it's the contemporary art Cambodia is in Cambodia is, is, is more about telling the story. And, and so you have young people who are doing film, who are making the rounds in terms of, you know, international events. Uh, so what's surprising to me is that people will still want to paint and draw, which is, which is kind of a, kind of an antiquated kind of a occupation, but, you still have those guys, um, but but I think I think the opportunity to make film to tell stories, 
doing performance art because now they're exposed to performance art because some of their friends have traveled and, and uh, yeah, so just access to information kind of is breeding this new age of, of creativity. And a lot of young people are just excited about art and, and I see that as a good thing, you know, I see that as a good thing. And, and, and some of them are quite strong already, even though they've already been practicing for maybe a handful of years, you know. My thanks to Sotpeep for answering my questions so considerately. You can explore his work in greater depth by going to the show notes. And if you liked what you heard, then please subscribe and leave a short review wherever you got your podcasts. Next time, we go to the riverbank in Penn on Penn and speak with curator Vuth Lino, who tells us about the way artists were impacted by the Khmer Rouge and how he's now piecing together Cambodia's art history. This has been Art Worlds with me, Dr. Clea Roberts-Comoretti. See you on the next journey. <laughs>